Hello and welcome to Why Are We Talking About Rabbits? That's this podcast. And rabbits are things that reproduce really quickly, like on social media or in the news. And they really, well, they're not very valuable except for those people who are making them so that you might give them their money. Why are we talking about rabbits? We're not. We're talking about heavy things lightly. Theology, history, deeply immersive years spent overseas. That's how we get to figure out and make sense of what's going on today. Today on Watar, we visit with Royfield Brown. I will call him an all-around historical media presence from the UK. And today on episode 35, we talk about politics and the notion of being black. How you doing? First of all, just tell me, where, what country do you call home right now? Like, what is this to you? This place <laughs> you know, in America. I, I am the original digital nomad. Um, I'm, I started I started reading articles just last year that uh, people like me have a name. Uh, yeah, and it's, it's digital nomad. So hmm. I have a British passport, but. I spend by far the least amount of my time there out of three countries. So I do six months of the year in the United States. And emotionally, I call that home now, though legally I'm not a resident. And then I have two kids that live in Toronto. So um, I go there for at least three months of the year on average. And then the other two to three months I, I'm in the UK. Generally, I'm in the UK in the summertime to see, to see my folks and my third child who lives in London. So, okay. yeah, I'm, all, so, I, I'm, I'm a hobo. I'm a hobo. Uh, I have been for two parts of my life a hobo, so I get it. I think I'm back into hobo life a little bit right now. So, um, so I'm going to read what I know to be your background, but then you're going to add to me because I want my folks uh, on Watar to, to know who we're talking to because I'm really, we're really blessed to have you here and to talk about some pretty cool ideas, I hope. So as I understand it, you uh, the founder of lots of things, but one of the things is myvillage.com. You produce pop promos, radio shows, direct live TV, owned a couple clothing shops, uh, from time to time, you're a contributor to Huffington Post. You've got seven podcasts in production right now. You've worked on over 600 podcasts. Is that right? It's got to be in that number, yeah. Yeah. Um, 31 countries on your visitation list. Mm-hmm. You've been a lot of places. And um, I was just listening to 10 American Presidents, which I know um, you were working on for a while. And then I loved How Jamaica Conquered the World. That's from more than a couple of years ago, but I love that. And that'll come up today, I think, a little bit. And that's you're a producer and you love Roman history, the history of Rome. Is that right? Yeah. You know, for me, I put it down to I adore history. And if anything, I'll say I'm a student of history um, would be the title I'd give myself. And I kind of put it down to being an only child who has a brother. Uh, but I, there was 13 years before my little baby brother was born. Oh, wow. <clears throat> and what, and I always remember as a little kid being fascinated by uh, looking at the globe. We'd always go around to some old aunt's house and they'd have a globe. And, and this was the 1970s when children were supposed to be seen and not heard. <laughs> so I'd be there sat silently whilst the old people were talking about whatever. And I just remember staring at staring at globes all the time and being fascinated by why countries were the shape that they were, which kind of led me into history. You know, why is it that Canada and America have this big straight line, whereas all the other countries have these wiggly lines and geopolitics and current affairs? At the age of my first memory of the news was the Turkish invasion of Cyprus. And I knew that was, that was significant. So, you know, when, when everybody else was playing with their action men or the GI Joe, I was, I was riveted to the news because like history was happening in front of me. Mm-hmm. And you could recognize even as a younger person that history had some relevance to you. 
Yeah, but it, it was, for me, it was, why was Russia so big? Why was China so big and all the other countries so small? And then from, a, from another perspective as well, um, looking at a British-centric globe, the ex-British colonies were always red or pink. Um, you, so, you know, why was it that, you know, India and Australia were always the same colour and, and Canada, et cetera, and, and trying to figure all, all this out. But also, you know, having West Indian parents in the UK meant that you're always taught about your culture and and that invariably is, is looking looking backwards as well as knowing who you are at that moment, you know. So, uh, yeah. Tell me what they taught you about who you were growing up in, in England. That's interesting, I think. If I had a pound for every time my mother said, you're going to have to work harder than your white friends. So I grew up in a majority white neighborhood. Like okay. when I went to school, I was um, the, I was only one of two black kids in my class out of 30. And that was probably pretty standard for the whole school. And the UK has never had formal segregation like, like the US. Mm -hmm. But one of the big differences between our pattern of migration, non-white migration into the UK, is it fundamentally really only started in 1948. So there isn't the generations upon generations of segregation, uh, essentially like there has been in the United States. But my parents always said to me, um, you're going to have to work twice as hard as your white friends to achieve uh, what they're going to achieve. Mm. There are going to be impediments in, in your way, uh, witting or unwitting impediments uh, that people will, will, will put there because you are different. Um, also, it was the 1970s, so it's it was also, also a time of kind of like black pride in, say, African history, um, so my parents would have, you know, kind of African carvings in the house. Um, we, we, we were, and, and we were taught that um, the world was our oyster and that we'd been uh, an oppressed people. Uh, my parents were from Jamaica, um, which let, only got independence in 1962 from, from the British so there's a sense of optimism about the future, but a sense of realism um, as to our situation right now and a rediscovering of, of black pride uh, and, and history. And, and the fact that that in all the history books that I'd look at at school um, just wasn't there, you know. Um, so I, I think I mentioned to you, I married a black woman as a pretty white suburban dude. So a lot of the themes you're saying are similar. So here's the question to pick up what you were talking about. When you're in the States around black folks here, is there a sense of unity? Because in New York City, where we're from, there's always a division with West Indian kids and black American kids. Can you feel this in terms of in a, as we search or as you search for identity or... What is that relationship between the West Indian kids and African-American kids in the States? You know, so I, I can't speak to what you're saying because I didn't grow up here. I've only been coming here for seven years. However, I know it historically to have been true. Right. And I've documented that. Um, but from a British perspective, a black British perspective, there is a difference between um our two countries which is subtle in one way and profound in another and the story that i was the example i was tell everybody is general general colin powell who funny enough is a jamaican american not an yeah. african-american yeah every black british person and arguably every british person but i'm going to say black british because i'm on safer ground there was surprised in 1991 to see the leader of America, the American armed forces was non-white. That was a shock. Like w when the news came on that America was about to invade Iraq, all us black Brits went, what? We looked at each other, what? 
<laughs> right. That was profound, right? And remember I said that black folks have been in England since you can read books that, you know, there's uh, skeletons of African monks found in Norwich abbeys from the 14th century. But this is like one or two people. Mm-hmm. In any significant numbers, it's only been since 1948. So we don't have the institutional legacy of being here. So the difference is, if you're going to be the head of the British Armed Forces, you're going to have to go gone to Sandhurst, which North Point is your equivalent to Sandhurst. And a lot of the families, a lot of the people that graduate from Sandhurst are are going to be from military families, going to be part of the British establishment. We haven't got the legacy of being part of the British establishment of that type. Mm-hmm. So you're not going to see the head of the British Armed Forces being black anytime soon. doesn't matter how egalitarian politically the country actually is. It's not going to happen because you need to have gone to Sandhurst and there are established families that send their kids to Sandhurst and have done hundreds of years it's a pipeline of sorts exactly so you can look at them so we looked at america and went oh my gosh right how did he get into the pipeline <laughs> <laughs> and, and this is the thing colin powell didn't go to sand didn't go to north point west point sorry didn't west go to point. west point right. he didn't go right when i interviewed him i you know i i was i was shocked so you can circumnavigate that in in the u.s but then if i look at acceptance of black culture in the uk on the ground to do with working class whites i would say it's the embrace has been more all-encompassing and 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 less of a worry um, than it appears to be in the in some bits of the United States. Can't say all, but in some bits. You're talking about popular black culture. Popular black culture. There's not the existential threat that some bits of uh, American, the American establishment, have to black uh, American culture. Mm-hmm. It's much less now, you know. Uh, but still, there is in some aspects uh some areas of american society there seems to be a worry but it's diminishing i'm, I'm mm-hmm. getting this in proportion right we it hasn't it, it's less so in in the united kingdom also economically so i spend you know a lot of time in oakland i can walk into black owned middle class businesses ad nauseum um we don't there isn't the same amount of those black-owned middle-class businesses in the United Kingdom. And if there are, then they are catering to a black audience. I see. Key difference, key difference. You can walk into a business in Oakland and it's just a business that just happens to be owned by somebody who's African-American. If that business exists in the UK, invariably it's catering to a black audience, key difference. However, again, and every black person who has traveled will tell you what I'm about to say, um, the amount of black destitution that there is in, in California, Northern California is utterly shocking and you don't see that in the UK. So uh, it seems like the economic spectrum is pulled wider mm-hmm. in the United Kingdom. Let me go back because you said something that's really relevant to this show um, when we were talking about identity. So uh, one of the, the sort of the formulation of the show is that there is this new world. And if you look historically and you're a historian, you'll know, obviously, a lot of people don't. There's this revolution of the 1600s right and through the 1700s, the Enlightenment. And I call those folks on the show the light people. And I do it on purpose because the light people become the white people, but they're really, it's a movement of ideas and identity. So 
one of the identities I'm always interested in is a new world, old world identity, a pre-enlightenment and a post-enlightenment. And here's my question, because you were touching on it and I feel it in my own experience. When someone, my girls, for example, my wife is, is black American, I'm white. When they're trying to figure out who they are, what we've always taught them is to identify in terms of their relationship to the transcendent or the divine. So their first movement toward identity, all of our vocabulary is about God, which is very old world way to identify who you are. You know, the old world always came through the father or the name or the language. It was always about who's your father. I lived in Bambara, I mean, in Mali in West Africa, and it was always who's your father, always. What's your last name? And so, and that always implied something about the father, the big father. You know, you've come from the, that place. How do you, how do you understand what you are first and foremost? As black folks in the Western world, so that is whether France, which has a significant black population, small but significant, uh, the UK, the Caribbean, and all of the New World, Canada, America, etc. We unfortunately define ourselves by the last 500 years. Right. By being the sons and daughters of slaves. And we look at our achievements through that light. And that's sad. You know, it's Black History Month here in the United States. And I dislike Black History Month. Dislike it profoundly. Because what we're doing is ghettoizing ourselves by saying that for the other 11 months of the year, um, we don't, our history is marginalized. But yay, this is our month. In the United Kingdom, it's October. I don't know why it's different, but it just is. Hmm, that's interesting. And I am bored and fed up by... Martin Luther King was a wonderful man, a great leader, fantastic orator, and the only American hero that white America will accept as a hero, some still begrudgingly, who was who pointed out the flaws of America at the time. So that's interesting. Does that is that grind you a little bit? That is it because he's accepted by a majority by white folks that it's like, uh oh, wait a minute. No, 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 not not at all, not at all, not at all. Right, but he's a much easier character for if you believe in the American system as taught in traditional history books, he's a much easier character for you to accept than, let's say, uh, Malcolm X. But that's not my point. My point is is that African-Americans, black people had a history and a rich history pre-slavery. That's right, yeah. And pre-colonialization in Africa. So for for all of these African American professors and scholars, you know, and it, and it's great to talk about Frederick Douglass, etc. But what about Mansa Musa? You know, Mansa. he was that rich that he cr- literally bankrupted Cairo when he went there on Hajj. He gave out too much gold. <laughs> yeah, too much gold. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Now, how many African-Americans who would tell you that they're proud African-Americans are even aware that this man existed? Well, this brings me to Ethiopia, where we did some work and I lived for a little while. And I feel like that's what the Rastas are doing, right? So this is... Mm -hmm. So I'm an Orthodox Christian and Ethiopians are Orthodox. And there's some differences there, but in the way that I practice liturgy and they do. And we can get into them. They're pretty fine, but they're important. In the end, though, I always am marveled, especially with white folks, I live in the South, who don't realize that Christianity predates anything they even think of in terms of Protestant Christianity by over a thousand years. Mm -hmm. Maybe the second oldest Christian country in the world. 
I think the Rastas are doing something, reaching into the past, into the old world, to make sense of their new world experience. Again, you know, the answer to all of your questions, ultimately, if it doesn't end up with Jamaica, passes through Jamaica. You do know that, don't you? Oh, I want to hear about that. <laughs> Educate me. That's excellent. I, so, I love Jamaica, though. <laughs> I hope so, but how? One of the first, the first real, if you're, if you're part of the, the American white establishment, the first black, true anti-hero, right, who rejected um, the American economic system um, was Marcus Garvey, who was a Jamaican. So you had Frederick Douglass, you've had these um, great uh, intellectual figures beforehand. Uh, But they wanted African-Americans, black Americans, to take their place around the American table Marcus Garvey just says, you know, in the early 20th century, forget all that. Yeah. We, we're going we're, we're gonna to take what is ours and then, and then we're going to remove ourselves. Yeah. And, and he is a Jamaican immigrant to, to New York. Now, this is a time of, in hindsight, it was the age of colonialization and imperialism is actually on the wane. But people in the 1910s and 1920s, didn't realize that at the time. In hindsight, we now know that. So what he did was to say to um, African-Americans, not only do we need to go back to Africa, which would have been a place where every history book would have just like laughed at, shunned. It was colonized by all these European powers. But he said, we need to look at... um, great African nations and there is one which is not being colonized and that happened to be Ethiopia and it just happens to also be the as you said the second oldest Christian country in the world after Armenia Armenia comes first and Ethiopia is second yeah the Georgians might fight you on that a little bit but yeah it's right there they're all right there (laughs) (laughs) and the and Ethiopia has this long continuous line of uh, heritage from antiquity. So much so that in the Middle Ages, there's all these uh, myths of a great Christian kingdom in Africa. And it was always ruled by somebody called Prester John. That is Ethiopia. That's right. Right. That's exactly right. So, and then you look at these rock hewn churches that they built in the mountains and it, and it boggles the mind. It, it subverts our whole notion from a white Western view of civilization and Africa, because this predates the United Kingdom being a country, England being a country, Ethiopia's older and continuous line. And he says, we need to look back. And the, and in 1930, there's this new leader, uh, emperor of Ethiopia called Haile Selassie. He is the Ras of Tafari. The Ras means leader, and Tafari is is this is this um, area because it is an empire. It's a polyglot empire of mm-hmm. uh, various kingdoms. Now, through a transmutation transmutation of ideas and time, this movement starts in Jamaica um, to revere the Ras of Tafari and the, and they have a very, in the 1930s, I can only imagine what those guys went through because by the time I was a kid in the 1970s in Britain, my parents still said Rastas. They did, right? Yeah. Yeah. They were like, you know, you know, they're kind of weird. They're subversive, et cetera. They re- they're rebellious, but in this kind of passive, like peaceful weed kind of way. Yeah, I know. Exactly. I know. It's like we're going to take a step out of your construct of society. Yeah, that's right. Mm-hmm. And economics. We don't sign up for that. Right. Yeah. Babylon. We're, we're not joining Babylon. Exactly. Exactly. And, and uh, so many of their references 
are from the Old Testament, mm-hmm. from the old the old bit of the, of the uh, the Bible, from actually from the Torah. And of course, the Babylonians enslaved the the people of Israel some five hundred years bef- before Jesus and whatever. So the Babylonian system is one of oppression. That's right, and it has its bubble uh, has its biblical reference. So you can only imagine if you're in the 1930s. Um, you know, you're going to wear your hair in dreadlocks. You're going to invert uh, language the way that Rastas do. That people have thought these people were crazy. And it's, I'll tell you what, just to just slightly leap, um, I, I went to Israel a few years back and it was amazing actually to realize if you're in Israel and you are uh, and, and to me if you're in Israel and you meet an Israeli Rasta that is a, a massive squaring of the circle <laughs> somehow and you go wait on a minute <laughs> you know but there are quite a few of them there a lot of white ones a few black ones How about that? Eth- yeah, Ethiopian right. descent and it actually blows your mind right you know yeah. there are these, there's this Jamaican sect of Christianity, which is actually quietly spread all around the world, which in, in some aspects, their great totem, which is dreadlocks, is now a countercultural totem. Mm-hmm. If somebody wears dreadlocks, you know, they could be at a G7 summit, but on the outside protesting right. against your Babylonian system. But the one used the word Babylonian, but against the economic system, which is oppressing people. That's right. They, they're countercultural. Um, and whether that person is actually, actually a raster or not, they take some level of spiritual lineage from Ethiopia, which then takes it from Israel, right. from, the, from the people of Israel, going back over 2,000 years. You know, well, and that's what I love about history. So you know this Rasta phrase, I and I, I and I, I and I. So I did some work. On, but this was actually a guy, uh, a Rasta friend of mine who was telling me this. And the I and I comes out of God and man. And Rastafari was God and emperor. And uh, and man is God and man. So you are God and man. I and I, I and I. It's a unity of three and what it is, it's the unity of you as emperor, you as God, and you as human. All of this comes right out of the theological lineage of the Ethiopian Orthodox Church, which is barring it from the Jewish tradition, right? And so it's super fascinating when you start to talk to a Rust. And what happened to me is I started listening to Natty King in like 2006 or something, and I'm barely understanding anything. And then John Mason, and I sort of got to guys that I could understand because of the patois. And... As an Orthodox Christian, I started to hear all the constructs of Orthodox theology in the language. Now, it wasn't exactly the same language by any means, but it was all the same historical edges and all the same historical contours of what I'm taught as an old world Orthodox Christian, which is you're not of this world, you're of something bigger. You're not to, you know, you, your goal is not to try to change the world, just try to change your soul. And when you hear all that in, 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 in the real Rastas, I, I started digging around and I'm like, this makes a ton of sense. And again, it's that old world. So let me, let, let, you mentioned, so you're a liberal in, in the sense of politics. What, what are you willing? So if we took the Western world, the enlightened world, the, whatever that is, the, the light people world since the rational revolution. As a liberal, are you working to extend that world of, of reason and, and the philosophers like Locke and Hume and these cats who tried to lay down a rational world so that we could all live in it and, and utilitarian sort of outlook on doing the best for the most amount of people? Are you trying to extend that world? Or as a, as a liberal from the UK, are you trying to reorient the world that we call modern are you excited about postmodern stuff where everything just sort of splinters? Or are you trying to put it back together as a liberal? Like, what's the what's the goal? One of the biggest problems that our society faces now, and this is global, mm-hmm. right, is splintering. 
It is silos. It is people speaking to others that confirm, confirm our own biases already. Yeah. Okay. It is great that we have streaming platforms. Great. All right. For, I'm on about Netflix, let's say. And while Netflix isn't the root of the problem of um, the fact that 20% of Americans are diehard Trump supporters, right? But it's a symptom of the same thing, right? So, so this is it. I go onto Netflix uh, and it says, right, Royfield, uh, yesterday you watched Captain America uh, movie. Uh, you watched, um, I don't know, Spider-Man and then the day before that, you watched uh, Batman versus Superman. I'm making this up. Right. So it says, this is what you should well, watch. I got you figured out, Roy Phil. Yeah. 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 So uh, so all I'm going to do on that platform now is watch superhero movies. I have to go, I have to make a conscious effort right. to get out of that. Yeah, you're going to, right, you're going to get in a loop. And that is what is happening in, with political thought and more dangerous than that the news whatever problems we had with the news pre the internet pre uh, talk cable at least at least citizens of all stripes sat down around the communal campfire which was the news at six o'clock or whatever the time it was and we agreed that that happened was important. We might take different things away from it, mm-hmm. but we agreed that was important. That was fact. And truth and truth, a type of truth, right? Yes. Yeah. I'm saying, you know, some people took away different things. So we could still vote left or right. Mm-hmm. You know, we still had some people saying, no, there is, there are deeper, more malevolent forces in the world or whatever. And don't just, accept things uh, as face value but fundamentally yeah it was the commons it brought us together whether you were in britain jamaica china india america was wherever brought us together now that is gone and the problem is the deep problem we're starting to see all over the world where people just have it when kerry Ann conway said alternative facts um, and though many people derided what she said, mm-hmm. she was completely correct. I listen to a set, I listen to this news outlet and it gives me, it confirms my own prejudices. It does, never challenges them. Right. It never challenges them. It never tells me anything which I'm uncomfortable with. Yeah. And my engagement is even deeper and it goes on and on and on. So I literally cannot talk. I have, I'm going to call him a friend. He's an acquaintance, but I want him to be a friend. There's a guy who is a Trump supporting conspiracy theorist. He's a radio presenter. Um, a guy called Stu Peters. Um, he has a successful radio show. And we've spoken a couple of times. Hmm. And we want to like each other. But he has a worldview which is so antithetical to mine and he just says dude you're being brainwashed and i say the same to him now i believe how do you get out it, well, well this is the thing and and that's the reason why i've decided that i need to um stop with a lot of my podcasts, just speaking to people that fundamentally kind of oh, is that right? Is that right? Yeah, I, I've, I've kind of stopped. So my show, Mid Atlantic. One of the things that I do is a politics show, I think, called Mid Atlantic, mm-hmm. and we're now having right of center speakers on because there is no point continuing with um, the liberal coziness that that we actually have. We're preaching to the converted, and our liberal orthodoxy is not being stress tested at all. Well, it's intellectually really- very lazy. Also, societally, it's very bad what we're doing. So I went on Stu Peters' show, right? And I believe that's what, that's what I- we need to do. You did it already? Oh, I wish yeah, I Yeah, I've, I've been on. I've been on. I'll, I'll, give, I'll give you the link. I think I did okay, <laughs> you know? <laughs> I, I struggle with this. There's a, there's a writer I love. 
His name is Seraphim Rose. He's a philosopher. He was a monk. And by the way, he looks like a Rasta, like many of the Orthodox monks look like Rasta. The Ethiopian monks are, I'm pretty sure they're, they're borrowing from the same idea, but he's not of this world. He's trying to remove himself. And what he says is, and I'm interested in what you say about this. He says, as people stop having a center, call it a God, call it a good, there's a truth around which we have to circle. Once that sun goes inside, in other words, you are your own center, at that point, society has to break apart, and the conversations you had with Drew, his name is Drew, they have to end the way you're feeling, which is in, well, okay, that's your facts, these are mine, and pretty soon what he says in his, his philosophy of life is, there's no way to hold the center because there's actually no center. And the only thing left is war. And this is Nietzsche, right? And this is him talking about, you, you have to make your own meaning and you're going to bump up against people who have different meaning. And like a good friend of mine, we call him Uncle Seth on this show, says, he goes, yeah, you just fight them. You, you're you not going to convince them because there's actually nothing to convince them to. There's no center to move them toward because each of us makes our own center. And so in that case, like you and I, I'm not saying this is the case with you and I, but you and I would talk, 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 and then we'd go back to our centers and get ready to fight. Does that sound too depressing? It, it does. It sounds somewhat frightening. There is something, there's a lot in what you said, and there is something about, and I have to use my language here carefully, about um, deprogramming people's minds because as any student of history will tell you um the nazis when they came into power in 1933 in germany didn't on day one say right we're going to round up all the jews right. they didn't say that at all right um they were they were anti-semitic um but step by step that to put in place rules it wasn't until Kristallnacht, which is going to be like 1937 then there was this overt policy of throwing bricks through jewish shop windows and etc mm -hmm. etc et but you set the ground so how people go down a radical road is step by step so and and this is the debate which i'm having with a lot of my and i'll say liberal latte drinking coastal uh, <laughs> uh friends i would love to hear about that that's one of the things i'm really happy to have you on the show is we have old world new world types so you're one of our new world sort of spokespeople uh, you know in the states it's left and right coasts yeah and so tell us what well it's, yeah, it's what a, are they saying a lot of them will say that we need to there's a new president. So if you just take the present situation in the United States, Biden is the new new sheriff in town and he's going to do good things. And they're somewhat surprised considering he's somewhat of a, a moderate Democrat at best. You know, how uh, modestly radical he's been so far. He's making all the right noises. And I'm like, yeah, that's great. But what about those approximately 50% of Americans are Republicans. Not all Republicans are Trump supporters by any stretch of the imagination, but at least half of Republican voters are diehard Trumpists. But, you know, my liberal latte drinking coastal elite friends will say, we need to just ignore them. I say, what do you do about them? So just ignore them, you know? And I'm like, no, you can't do that because you have this festering rump and they see themselves as being ignored. And that's the great thing about Trump. They were ignored no longer, right? right? It doesn't matter what the economic and political truth is, right? But they're festering away. So I'm like, you can't allow these people to fester. You need to engage. You utterly need to engage because we all need to get around the communal campfire again. We don't all need to agree, but we need to get around that communal so campfire again. What's the fire? Like, what is the thing? Because everybody likes to be around a campfire because it's warm. I always, when I frame my argument, it's always around uh, access to, to communal media. But it, but it is much wider than that. Actually, 
what the fire is, is us all. And it's, you know, it's that whole thing where, you know, you're out in the cold and what keeps you warm is the warmth of, of other people. Oh, that's right? interesting. That, that's the fire, right? That's the fire. And we, we need to recognise the fact that we can't leave significant people out. What in the American tradition, America managed to do was to leave out significant numbers of Americans out of that communal campfire. African-Americans, Native Americans. Just for what it's worth, one thing that doesn't half annoy me, and I'm, and I'm black so I can say this, <laughs> when, when black scholars and when black thinkers always say the original sin of America is slavery, no it's not. The original sin of America is the, the raping, pillaging and disenfranchisement of Native peoples. That's the original sin. The second sin is slavery. And we, need to, yeah. and we need to recognize that. As black folks, we need to recognize that. And white folks need to recognize that, right? We're not the original sin. We're, we're, we're the second sin. It's mm -hmm. still a sin, but we're second. Mm -hmm. We're second. Because even black intellectual thinkers, black radicals, we forget and marginalize the native peoples. They've been decimated. Oh, you feel that even in your own conversations with other black folks? Oh, God, absolutely. The original sin of America isn't slavery. It's this, that's the second sin, you know. One of the original sins of these thinkers who created the New World, Francis Bacon and all these scientists, is they actually devised a really bad science on race. Like, what is a black person? This is a very odd category for me. What's a white person? These, this labeling thing can be problematic. Oh, I just hate it. I'm not saying it's it doesn't real for you or for me, but we've we keep making it real. You remember that public enemy, the hater taught hate. Now we're gang banging uh, from the, from I forget which song it was in the '80s, but it's like we keep using this same really bad construct of race to make sense of ourselves. It just drives me nuts. And, and and the thing is, all of our constructs on racial identity as I said earlier on in our conversation, are post-1500. That's right. You know, it, this is you know this and is there was like, you know, we existed as human beings before that. You know, you go back and look at literature on people who, in Europe, who were non-white, it didn't say that they were automatically inferior. It didn't. I agree. It just said... It just said, oh, this person is a more, that the expression more was a yes, covered a multitude yes. of sins. Yes. You could be kind of Arabic or North African in appearance through to, through to, you know, black as we traditionally kind of understand the concept. But there was no, this person comes from a diseased, uh, and it, it used a Trump expression, it whole country. Yeah, That's from somewhere else. Yeah, There's a human being that kind of looks different. Um, you know, our notions of our notions of identity and oppression and liberation are so wrapped up with the last five hundred years. You know, the Romans blessed them with equal opportunity in slavers. They didn't slave anybody. You yeah. could be have white, blonde hair, blue eyes, and yeah. be a slave. You know, um, you got conquered. You were a slave. That's exactly. the way it worked. Yeah. Exactly. But then also, <laughs> the Romans were like, well. You can buy your way out of slavery. And also, it's not chattel slavery, as we understand yes, it. There's right. a bit of that. Don't get me wrong. There are people working in salt mines and stuff. But, like, you know, you could work in someone's household. You could become the family accountant. Yeah. You could you could go out into society, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, but anyway, you know, slight, slightly off the point. Notions of identity, we need to look further than the last... 500 years backwards to understand them. What does black mean? I don't really know. In our, it's one of those things which we know when we see it, but it's really hard actually to define. Yeah, I agree. And, and there's somebody who- That used to who, be the soul that was, you knew it when you see it, but it was hard to define. <laughs> that used to be a soul. Now it's a, a race. It's one of the things which I find slightly problematic about American culture. And this is me- coming at this from a British forward slash Jamaican perspective. I forget what percentage of 
white Americans actually have African-American blood. Just for the sake of argument, let's say it's 20%. I forget what, I used to know the figure, but I've forgotten the figure. Mm -hmm. And when white Americans discover that they have some African-American blood, they're always shocked because there's a, because there's this great thing called ethnogenesis, which is um, we kind of construct our own uh, ethnic past. Saying. That's correct. We, we, exactly. we construct it. We construct it. So, um, and it, it is a case in point. I've got a great friend of mine, a guy called Jared Kobeck. He is an author. Um, he had a great book a few years ago called I Hate the Internet. It's always described in all the press as a Turkish American writer. All the press all over. Does right? his head pop off when he reads that, probably? No, no, no. no. But he, he, he'll own it. it. He, he owns it. He owns it. He, to, he, he speaks Turkish to his father. I got a text from him in pure Turkish the other day. I went, dude, what the hell was that? And you know, oh, I meant that's my dad. <laughs> that's right. So he, so he grew up, I forget where he grew up. Let's say he grew up in, in L.A. I don't think it was. I think he grew up somewhere in the East Coast, but whatever. He grew up in America is the case in point. Always described as a Turkish-American writer. Last week or two weeks ago, I discovered his mother is Irish. And I went, you're an Irish-American writer. And he went, no, I'm not. No, really? He says, I, I, I have no connection to that part of me. But actually, he's 50% Irish. He doesn't own it. He doesn't talk about it. He doesn't celebrate at St. Patrick's Day. That's ethnogenesis. He's created his own uh, racial identity. He's completely ignored the one half. And that's what happens with a lot of white, white Americans, the 20% who have some African-American blood. Because at some point in the past, uh, and we all know the stories, slave master has had sex with, uh, has raped, sorry, um, a slave. She's had a child. And then that child who was then a mulatto, you know, half black, half white, mixed race, has been raped by another white. But da, da, da. So you had in these um, southern towns, after, after slavery was abolished, people who literally was only 1%, they looked white, but the whole town knew, knew. that they had, they had some level of black blood. So they were treated as, as, as black. But it's utterly not scientific. It's just odd. It's the oddest form of categorization that I know of in the world. Exactly. And then these people then realized that when slavery was abolished, we're only black in this town. If we go 100 miles up the road or if we go out of state, it's interesting. then we're not black anymore. We're not yeah. black. Right, we don't have the stain anymore. So they went and moved. And then, of course, when you then, you know, you are you were black in Louisiana and you've moved to Missouri and nobody knows you, of course, you don't talk about the fact that you That's were right. you right. were black. You, 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 you meet somebody, you make love, you have babies, you get married. That's gone. That's gone. So you get, so here we are in 2021 and 50, sorry, 20% or whatever the figure is, of uh, Americans who will class themselves as white, they look at, they do ancestry.com, whatever, and they go, what? African-American? You know, it's, it's always a massive shock. <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah, for sure. I'm the other way where I don't know what my genetic makeup is, but having grown up in, uh, around a lot of black folks and lived overseas and now married a black woman, I... My kids hate this, Royfield, but I like I'm black. I'm sorry. But I don't do this. I'm not doing this on this podcast. It's not real because I really kind of want to I don't want to claim the the racial categories that we use. But when I say that, you should see that my daughters roll their eyes. And they're right to roll their eyes. But at the same time, man, it's such a moving target. Historically and scientifically, it's such a moving target. It is a moving target. And there is a guy in the UK, a comedian called the White Yardie. The Yardie is a Jamaican expression for somebody who's from Yard, from home, a Jamaican. Okay. And uh, prior to Jamaica becoming independence, and don't quote me on these figures, but let's say between 5 and 10% of the population of the island of Jamaica would have been white. So don't quote me exactly on those figures, but it was 
small but significant. We're not talking 1%. Um, and since the independence of Jamaica, there's been white flight in the island of Jamaica. Um, the the, mono, the motto, sorry, of the country is out of many one people. Hmm. Um, the first few prime ministers were obviously not traditionally black when you look at them. So you had a guy called Buster Manti, uh, uh, um, Michael, Manley. Michael Manley, he, his father, what, Norman Manley. He was known you know, as a black man, Michael Manley, or what was? Well, no, Jamaicans would have said he's a Jamaican. Jamaicans are kind of, kind of, Jamaicans from the bottom looking up, colorblind. Jamaicans from the top of society looking down, different thing. Very different interesting. Thing. But they would have said he's just a Jamaican. Right. Edward Siaga, famously in Jamaican terms, uh, it's like the fourth or the fifth prime minister, um, had Syrian parents and was born on the boat uh, coming to Jamaica when his parents were emigrating from Syria to Jamaica. So you have a whole load of the, you know, there's a lot of Jamaicans who aren't of pure African stock or from African stock, full stop. So the white Yardie, um, he, if you, if you don't see this guy, he just sounds Jamaican, which hmm. is a synonym for black, but he's a white guy. I'm sure he would call himself black. In his heart, he's black. He identifies with the struggle of Jamaicans. He was born in Jamaica, he, but he's a white guy. He can, he's authentically Jamaican. No Jamaican of any color is going to say you're not Jamaican. He sounds Jamaican when he speaks. He likes Jamaican food, culture, etc. But, but he can code switch. He you can. know, he can sound like was, he, 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 he can sound like an he can sound like a, a typical English guy, but no black person in the United Kingdom would say that he's not one of us. Whatever that means, I think that's a better way of saying it. Whether he yes. calls himself black or not, but say that, but he is one of us. He gets us, we get him, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Hey, would you would you take a test with me to sort of wrap things up? It's called our light lightometer test. And, All right. and thanks for coming on, by the way. We love you. No, so, listen, th thank you for having me on. We'll take the test. Here's your first question. When you die, you won't really die like all the way. It's more like you'll be asleep or waiting for some next world of some sort. So three is, oh yeah, that's definitely true. Two, probably. One, probably not. Zero. Is, Repeat yeah. the question to me, gang. So I, I have strong feelings about what happens when I die, but just... Give me sure. the question again, so I've got it. So you can, when you die, my Royce, when you die, it's, it's not you don't. This doesn't have to apply to anybody else but you. But when you die, you really won't die all the way. It's more like you'll kind of fall asleep and be waiting for some type of next world. I'm going to say. Do I say three or two on that? And I'll give you. I'll give you my my honest answer sure. now te technically no, honest answer is saying say, i'm going to give you a dishonest answer i'll give you <laughs> what i believe sorry absolutely that's all we got i'm got. i'm technically i'm technically a buddhist and but do i believe i'm going to come back as as another animal no but and this is where the new and the old world for me meld together I'm a create. Uh, we're all just children of stardust, you know, atoms and molecules, and we go back into the earth, and then we reform as a multiplicity of other things. So I could be part tree, a bit of grass, a bit of a dog, a bit of a whatever, and blah 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 sure, blah, sure. blah. Right, and that's just the science. That's what that's what happens to us. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to say three but it's not in the classic sense that i'm gonna wake up again and right, as, be, as, as, a, as a human being right, right. yeah exactly you know or royfield mark two or you know right. yeah except but i actually believe it, it's between a two and a three because my my molecules my atoms will become other things we'll give you a special guest rating of 2.5 we don't usually do that all right all so right. that's hot Good. we'll call Good. it we'll call nice. it the the english decimal 
uh, <laughs> rating, so. All right. No second question. Right, the French rationalists will get really upset with that. Yeah, they will. They will they claim will. that. But anyway. <laughs> they sure will. You're right, absolutely. So the best way to get to know you is to ask someone else about you. Or said another way, the best way to get to know me, Royfield, or me, is to ask someone else about me. Don't don't talk to me. Talk to someone uh, else. I'm going to get that slap bang in the middle. And i tell you the reason why. Um, because I taught – I. You introduced me by saying that I do a whole load of different podcast shows and all of those things are incredibly important to me, but dependent on who you ask about me, there will, uh, you'll get, I don't say wildly different answers, but you'll get different answers as to who I am. So whatever the middle score is, give me that middle score. Because if you talk to my mother, she doesn't know me as a lover, let's say. Right. If you if you speak to if you speak to um, somebody who I've dealt with to do with one one the biggest podcast I do this thing about the archers, they don't necessarily know that I'm a crazy about geopolitics. So smack dab in the middle would be something like a one point five. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, so this one I find instructive. If you were to carry a picture around with someone. Or if you do, if you carry a picture around of a friend or a parent or whatever, say, or you put a picture in your house, you're actually carrying that person or putting that person right there close to you in some kind of real way. The picture itself is bringing them close to you in a real way or not. Zero is like, no. Three, three in a real way. And I'll be honest here, and this is a a, a bit of a, point of weakness for me uh my youngest child uh her and i haven't properly spoken uh for a little time she lives in canada um and she's going through uh, some teenage danks um love her dearly and i deliberately um keep her picture good heavens and and now now it's kind of gone but you can't quite see it on on the back But she, she's she's on my phone mm-hmm. deliberately, so that um, I'm still close to her. I got it. Beautiful. Here's your fourth one: respect isn't earned; it's owed by you to others. So respect isn't earned; it's owed by you to others. No, no, I, that I completely utterly agree with, and that's what my father taught me without using those exact same words and i think if we go back to one of the things i said in the in our conversation i have no time for my liberal latte drinking friends that say we should ignore that 25 to 20 percent of americans who believe the election was stolen mm-hmm. you know just because we might believe that they don't respect us, but we should give them the respect um, of, of engaging with them. We don't agree with them, but we're going to engage with them. We want to pull them back into the body politic. We uh, we believe that dialogue and discourse, I believe that dialogue and discourse is incredibly important because otherwise we just fracture as a community, yeah. as a society, et cetera. Great, great, clear answer. Here's our last one. And I'll score, I'll total them up and I'll tell you where you stand on our Lido meter exam. Um, and this kind of has two parts because it depends on the person, but you hope and you expect to take care of your parents, uh, by having them live with you or very close in the same building with you as they get older and affirmed or flip it. You expect to live with your kids when you get older and affirmed and in their house and right in their, in their grill as you get older and affirmed zero, one, two, three, you know, you're you're making me like touch on some themes which are very prescient to me at the moment, John. Okay. So, um, so not many people know that my youngest child is, you know, she's going through some stuff at the moment. And it's not something which I I tell some of my closest friends, you know. So you managed to wow get that confessional out of me. And the, and here's another one. 
So my father is 76 um, and he's declining. He was always an ox of a man, strong man. Um, he went out and, you know, he came to England when he was 15, 16. I think he came when he was 15. Um, and, you know, worked every day of his life, you know. Wow. And he, there's no such thing as the British dream like there is the American dream, but he lived it. He came as an immigrant. And then by the time he retired, he owned like three houses. He was a bus driver. My father is declining physically. And because I spend so much time out of the country, I see it, you know. Oh, right. Because it. Yeah, because I go, yeah, I don't see him from nine months to the next year to six months. So I see it. And my father, I will say up until five years ago, was physically stronger than me. Hmm. Right. He always did manual, you know, he was a, a manual guy, bus driver and all this kind of stuff. Anyway, the, the, my point of mentioning all that is to say that I, as my parents are declining now, me being a, an international hobo doesn't sit that comfortably with me. Okay. And at the start of the pandemic last year, I went home to the UK and I was there for six seven months or so which is the longest i spent in the uk in forever mm. and it was because you know back in march of 2020 we all thought that the world was going to hell yeah and you'd best be with your loved ones or at least the ones who could look after themselves uh, the least you know um so so you i think i'm two uh, one zero no i don't expect my my children to look after me. So um, I don't at all. D am I expecting when my parents are in their complete and utter dotage, they're not there yet, but they're declining, especially my father. I expect, and when I go to the UK, I do live with them. I do live in the house. I'm in the middle on this one. Okay. Yeah. I don't I don't I don't at all expect my children to look after me. That's not gonna happen. So my analysis, so we have this little like so your number is eleven point five. And just having done this a number of times, you sound very old world. So here's here's what you aren't. You're not the shining city dweller on the hill. That's where you have hope for you're all modern, all in all science, all Reddit. You love Reddit. You love modern stuff. You think Columbus was a jerk, but also you really appreciate the new world philosophies that helped that he brought over. So you're, you're not really a new world or here's your score. The villager. This is the old world way is in your bones there's a really good chance places like Ethiopia will roll out the red carpet for you. Your Spotify collection includes some pretty old world stuff that may be very hard to pronounce. And you kind of, um, you, you like hierarchy, but you're not that good at obeying it. That's what you got out of your 11.5. You know, I, I, I wouldn't disagree with that. And <laughs> good, um, we'll take it. I, I, I'm, a, I'm a big lefty, but I'll let you into another little secret. I'm an emotional monarchist. So that's that whole hierarchy thing, right? I don't believe in the right in the divine right of kings because that's just utterly nonsense. But there's something quite nice and comforting about having somebody with a shiny hat on their head who is symbolically that that we all look to uh, we're all a people together. We all look to them, to her, to him as uh, the person that, yeah. you know, makes us feel better when we fall over. Yeah. So I'm, my policy is completely not left of center, but I understand the power of symbolic continuity by having someone do the shiny hat on their head. So, yeah, I think symbolic that's perfect. Continuity. Symbolic continuity is a great phrase. We'll take that up next time. So we've been out a while, man. I'm actually going to – I hope you enjoyed it. You, I woke you up out of bed, but I think it worked out. I think it really worked out. <laughs> you know what? It did, and, and, I'm, and I'm glad you did. Thank you, man. Have a great day out in San Francisco. And you, man. Look, look after that family of yours. I will. I, they're out and about, so we'll see what happens. <laughs> Peace, brother. Take care, John. Bye-bye. Shani Skagi Marjos to Mr. Royfield Brown for coming on. 
Shani's Gagimardos means to you, Roy Field Brown, the victory. We wish you the best. It's set at the KP table in Georgia. Watar is produced by Andrew Schwark and Daniel Paternos. The pod is brought to you by First Things Foundation. That's our nonprofit. It's filled with people who show up to go and do two years worth of service where they immerse long-term in some pretty tough neighborhoods in order to serve people there and their best vision for a best life. So share Watar with friends, hit us up with good reviews, and do the thing we need you to do, which is get to know us, support us, because we're really trying to change the way service looks. Service is about, right, becoming one with whom you serve and to whom you serve. Nakvam dis, hasta luego, kambufo, and peace out.